You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 19th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. When you have a Republican Party, which I deeply regret, I served with a number of the people who are currently still in the Congress. I was there for eight years and I see them turning a blind eye uh, to what is going on. I, I see them standing by when the president uh, orders the declassification of uh, very important intelligence information in order to help himself and, and hurt others. She's back, but should she be? My guests Jonathan Fenby and Florence Biederman will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the brutal shrinkage of Denmark's public broadcaster, the equally brutal shrinkage of Emmanuel Macron's approval ratings, and as Australia's new Prime Minister establishes a benchmark in the category, what's the weirdest thing we've seen in a politician's office? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Agents France Press Bureau Chief in London, Florence Biedemann, and Jonathan Fenby, Chairman of China Research and Director of European Political Research at TS Lombard, and author of the new book Crucible, 13 Months That Forged Our World. Welcome both, and we will start in the United States, where campaigning towards November's midterm elections has kicked up yet another notch with the return to the fray of Hillary Clinton. At first glance, this may seem like a debatably sensible move by the Democrats. Democratic Party. Clinton has twice failed to get elected president and remains, to put it charitably, a polarising figure. It might reasonably be retorted, however, that in 2016, more Americans attempted to elect her president than have voted for any white man in US history, and that were she president now, we might not be learning more than we wish to about Mario Kart. Um, Florence, is, is, is Hillary Clinton a, an asset for the Democratic Party at this point? Well, it's, it's difficult to answer this question. I mean, there is two sides uh, of the story. She's, as you said, like pretty divisive still inside her party. And it's clear that uh, the Republicans start to, to tie her with the, the more, most vulnerable Democrat candidate, like to to discredit them. So uh, it's it's something maybe she's coming back a bit early. And she, she had quite a low profile so far. So, But what she's good at and what she's also doing is like campaigning for fundraising. And on this aspect, she, she may be an asset, I think. Uh, Jonathan, I'll, I'll ask you the opposite question. Is she an asset, in fact, to, for the Republican Party? Because I think despite, well, despite the fact that she did win the popular vote, obviously in 2016, and by quite quite a reasonable margin, I think it's fair to say that had almost literally anybody else been the Democratic Party candidate in 2016, they would have beaten Donald Trump handily. Absolutely. And you have to look at her for that. I mean, she is an asset with, if you like, those who see her as an asset, <laughs> to, to, to say something extremely unoriginal uh, there. Um, so some people love her and think she was cheated uh, of the presidency, getting the popular vote, uh, not the electoral college vote, etc., uh, etc. Et but uh, it's a bit the same, perhaps, with Obama uh, coming uh, back into the fray. In a sense, uh, to me, this shows uh, how the Democrats are uh, very short 
of new candidates to run. They're running people. They're pushing forward people from the the the, the, the past um, to do down Trump uh, and so on. And as she puts it, to save our democracy and our body politic. Um, but that kind of high level uh, highfalutin, as I'm sure many Trump supporters would would put it, um, message may not be what's needed uh, to prevent his re-election. Uh, Florence, I remember being struck during the presidential campaign by a statistic which I think uh, Harper's Magazine disinterred, and I forget the precise number, but it was a high number. I think somewhere in the 80 or 90 percentile that uh, since 1993, the number of children christened Hillary in the United States had decreased uh, by by that much. Uh, And it was, of course, a, a girl's name and a boy's name. But what is it you think about her that the people, because people who dislike Hillary Clinton really yeah. dislike yeah. Hillary Clinton. It goes beyond mere disagreement with what she represents and what she stands for. There's something quite visceral. What do you think it is? Is it just reflexive misogyny, the sort of uh, response to a, a, any woman in a position of power? Or is there something about her that sets people's teeth on edge? No, I mean... Um First, you could answer how many Donalds have been christened. That would be also an interesting <laughs> statistic, but that's for our next uh, program. Uh, yes, you are right. Like, there is something uh, nearly irrational with uh, with people hating Hillary. I could say, yes, there is a part of misogyny, but this is a, a bit uh, of a short answer. I think it's also linked to, to the Clinton brand. I mean, to, to the fact that uh, there, there has been maybe too much like cheating and lying from Bill Clinton with the Monica Lewinsky affair and then there would be this uh, these two people like getting rich together and profiting of the situation so th- th- there is definitely like a-, a family thing in it and it's much more than than just Hillary yeah I, I mean I think misogyny probably does play quite a part in this but I was struck I was in the states from time to time uh, just before and uh, the election last presidential election and I was struck by the number of people uh, and these are not Midwesterners. These are people on both coasts uh, of the U.S. who did, as you say, they really hated her. Uh, there was a kind of almost irrational, uh, she is terrible. And when you tried to get into it, uh, there was no real answer to this. She, she, I, there are people who have this kind of effect um, on voters and on other people. And I think also last time around, uh, there was, uh, you can say, the, the electoral cycle and everything else, there was need for a change. And she was definitely not a change. Unfortunately, Trump was the change that, that came out. And as Florence said, um, you know, she is connected with the whole dynastic politics, the Clintons, the Bushes, uh, and so on, uh, which is rejected by a lot of people in the United States. I mean, whether they now feel that uh, they wish they hadn't rejected <laughs> it is a completely different matter because we're not starting from there. We're starting starting from Trump's America. And she, in this uh, article in The Atlantic, she, you know, hits all the bullet uh, point, all the, the, the bullseyes on that. And it's absolutely true. But as we've seen, most Trump supporters, uh, and I know they're a slightly falling uh, group of Americans, say, so what, you know, that he's our man. And she was never their woman, their person. Uh, Florence, looking at the substance of what uh, Hillary Clinton has been saying, and the clip we played at the top of the program was from an appearance on the on the Rachel Maddow show on NBC, if I've remembered my networks correctly. Uh, she warned that if Trump is not held in check, and by which 
Hillary Clinton means by the American voters in November, that he will get uh, even crazier, that he will start sort of conducting mass purges, attempting to sort of ignore the rule of law completely, um, which to me at least prompted the question, is, isn't that going to happen if he is checked? In fact, it might get even more so if he feels like he has been confined by the American voter. This is not just so we're clear on this, an endorsement of Donald Trump. Yeah, I guess this also shows a certain lack of uh, a program from the Democrats. You know, if the only yeah. reason to vote for them is to prevent Trump uh, from being madder and madder, what does it mean? What are they proposing? I mean, is, is, is it the, the only basis on which you should vote for them? To me, that would be really insufficient. Particularly since, you know, the economy is doing well. And while he may have had relatively little to do with it, uh, and the tax cuts may not have worked and capital expenditure isn't taking off uh, as expected, you know, most people are probably feeling uh, better off. And that, that tends to help the incumbent president. Just a final thought on uh, Hillary Clinton, Jonathan. She can't possibly fancy another crack at it, can she? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but you never know. I mean, if you'd asked me, you know, four years ago, I'd, could Donald Trump have a crack at it? I'd have said, I don't think so. So you never could tell where. No, I think I'll, I'll say N-O here. Okay, well, let's look now at Denmark, the television and radio schedules of which are shortly to become thinner, just in time for the descent of the long winter evenings. Denmark's public broadcaster DR is going to pull three of its six television stations and three of its eight radio stations. This is due to a 20% reduction in DR's budget, which has followed last year's decision by Denmark's government to scrap the mandatory licence fee. It's the first European country to do this. Um, Florence, where... As a decision uh, by a, a European country, scrapping a license fee, where on the spectrum between beginning of the end of civilization or uh, <laughs> sensible recognition of a changing broadcasting market do you place it? Okay, let's place it a bit. <laughs> It's a bit of both. No, I think that, that there. this is not the, the only country, I think, doing this. There is a recognition that this system maybe is too rigid, uh, that people don't watch TV that much anymore. Like the younger generation is rather on Netflix and Amazon, which is a problem for every, every TV uh, around Europe. Like the BBC recently complained uh, about this also, like not to have enough funding. So the system where the license fee is funding TV is probably going to, to, to receive because uh, it has showed its limit. But the point is then, wh what would replace it? I mean, we, will there be some commercials or they, they, they need to have uh, a support or whatever or a support of the state? Which... All of which prompts the question, Jonathan, is, is the licence fee just about funding the public broadcast? Because I've always thought there was more to it than that. You're, you're, you're telling people to... Well, you're compelling people to buy somewhat into a, a notion of a, a collective enterprise of citizenship of the the yeah the national conversation. Yes, I mean I'm old-fashioned enough to actually go along with that. I think that idea of national conversation, if you like, let's just say it, national cultural uh, enterprise is still a valuable one. Uh, and uh, this is a question of funding, but I think that governments should put the funding of public service broadcasting uh, a lot higher than they do. Uh, mind you, I mean, they should also make sure that the money is properly spent, that programs are produced which appeal across uh, the wide range of the audience, that they can compete with Netflix uh, and everyone else. Uh, 
that's that's normal uh, business. But I think there there is a, a genuine value in this. But just to follow that up, Jonathan, obviously th- this argument gets happen held held. You hold an argument, have an argument. It gets <laughs> had a lot about the BBC, yeah, uh, uh, because the BBC, I think, like most national broadcasters, certainly like the ABC in my own home country, uh, gets damned from both sides of politics, uh, which I usually think is a sign. It's a good thing. It's yes, doing yes, a pretty yes, good job, yes. but. Is there an institutional problem with organisations like the BBC that they they do tend to fail to reflect the interests and concerns of at least uh, one particular tranche of the population? Because, you know, journalists, people who work in broadcasting, they they do tend towards being educated, middle-class, metropolitan liberals. That is a a fact of life. Is there a... Do they occasionally drift too far into over-representing that? They drift too far then, and then they can drift too far the other way. Overcompensating furiously. Overcompensating. Hence, you know, the accusations that the the, the BBC has been soft on the Brexiteers, Mm. has been too soft on Brexit, and treats politicians with too much of a kid glove, not saying encouraging them to talk but not saying basically hey where are your facts you've got it all wrong you're 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 making all this up um and i think you know it, it, it that will be a debate that will go on absolutely forever uh, and is in its way um a, a positive thing to have uh, in society but i think this idea of public service information entertainment broadcasting Including sport, it must be said, you know, is does have a value in our society. It's 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 a central element to me. Uh, but then, as I say, I'm a child of the past, perhaps. Uh, Florence, in the specific case of Denmark, the, the thing that did strike me about this, where there might be an argument for a certain amount of rationalisation, um, a, a national broadcaster which had six TV stations and eight radio stations for a population of five point seven million mm. people, is, is it possible that the <laughs> The people of Denmark, there are fewer of whom there are than Londoners, uh, were being somewhat overserviced. Uh, well, I don't know the Danish TV well enough <laughs> to, to, to really answer this question. But uh, okay, I, I don't think also the uh, separation of the license fees, the disparation of the the public service. You know, you, you're right when you say some rationalization and maybe some other models of of, of doing this. Uh, and yeah, again, you could argue too many channels. Uh, but uh, actually, the debate, I, I agree with Jonathan, it's something important, but it's rather like how you finance the future and uh, what kind of development for these TVs, you know. Yeah, the danger it's, is that if it, if it comes purely a, an argument about funding, that you will then get governments saying, well, yes, you know, we are giving you the money. Uh, they're not actually giving the money. They're allowing the public, if you like, to give the, to give the money, and we uh, demand political uh, obedience or whatever in return for it. I mean, that would upset my argument completely if you lost the independence. Uh, Florence, do you think there is a better way, or any better ways, to fund a, a public or state broadcaster other than a license fee? Do you think they're going to have to think of something different? Because, as you pointed out earlier, increasing numbers of people don't even own a television, and you can always tell how many people don't own a television because they'll tell you. Um, but, but nonetheless, should, shouldn't a government still be able to say, well, tough luck, a, state bro- a national broadcaster is a good thing, whether you avail yourself of it or not, um, so you're going to have to keep paying for it like you have to pay for all sorts of other infrastructure you yeah, may not yeah, necessarily exactly. use yourself? Yeah, but that's uh, in the end, the result is that younger people uh, would less and less... Uh, agree with that so you you would have a problem anyway that's why we're thinking maybe an evolution of of the way it's done you know like 
you would you wouldn't have to pay that much, but you would kind of choose a package, for example, of channel you want to watch, but not all the channel. Just kind of a flexibility in it, because in any case, if the model goes like this, I mean, they will. Uh, I see around 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 me, like the younger people, they don't watch TV anymore, and they don't no. want to to pay the license fee. So you have to answer this question. That's why, in a way, I think the the model has to evolve. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Jonathan Fenby and Florence B. And coming up next, Emmanuel Macron's pursuit of the traditional French presidential trajectory from cock of the walk to feather duster. The Escapist takes you to places less explored. In this special edition, we hop on a hodgepodge of connecting trains to recreate the story journey of the Orient Express from London to Istanbul. We pass by drive-through liquor stores and small desert towns on an adventurous road trip from New Orleans to Texas and visit Europe's highest airports. For the jet setters among you, we'll show you how to beat jet lag in cities from Hong Kong to LA and reveal our annual travel top 50, highlighting the best in transport and service from the most picturesque rail journey to the airline you'll want to board for your next trip. Perhaps that next flight will deliver you to Cairo or Madeira or the island of Tashima. We'll take you there and we'll tell you where to stay, drink and dine next time you find yourself far from home. We've even put together a wardrobe for wherever your travels may lead you, as well as an eclectic selection of books and songs to keep you entertained on the journey, when you're not too busy looking out the window spotting the places you've yet to visit. The Escapist from the Editors and Bureau of Monocle magazine is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Florence Biedemann and Jonathan Fenby. Now, as recently as May last year, 66% of French voters approved of Emmanuel Macron sufficiently to elect him president, even allowing for the fact that certain of that cohort might just have been voting for anybody but his opponent, Marine Le Pen of the National Front. The deflation of Macron's support since has been spectacular. One recent poll by Le Figaro puts Macron's current approval rating at 19%, a level of affection which in more robust periods of French history has precipitated angry mobs with pitchforks and tumbrils. Um, Florence, why has everyone stopped liking your president? Uh, well, not everyone likes to know. Nineteen percent and falling. It, it, it may it may be down to eighteen or seventeen yeah, since we've been I, on air. I think the most humiliating for for him in this statistic is that it's it's, it's even worse than or the same than uh, François Hollande, his predecessor, mm. at the same period of his presidency, which is really tough for him, I guess, and, and because he wanted to be the, like uh, the counter model of uh, of Hollande. So why? I mean, okay, there, there are two main factors. I would say uh, first. Uh, the economy, like it, it's not doing as well as was expected. The growth is a bit slow and unemployment uh, is not diminishing. And that figure is kind of a cornerstone for French president. Like, you know, if you don't decrease unemployment, then you fail. So uh, it's still at 9%. Yeah. It has not really diminished. Uh, and there is also, okay, a perception of him that that would be the second factor. That would be himself, his personality. Uh, he presented himself as young, as someone who would change everything, who was different, 
who had different policy in the end his policy is rather like classical liberal policy of uh, kind of center right nothing really new in that and his personality is, is perceived really like arrogant whenever he talks to people like he pretends to be candid and direct and frank this is how his uh, his um, entourage defends uh, him but uh, each time he opens the mouth and talks to French people like he seems to to I don't know it's perceived as kind of disdain like recently he told to a young unemployed gardener uh, okay just cross the street and you I, I find you a job myself like in a bartender or whatever so each each time he, he engaged with people m- not each time but most of the time then the result is he's seen as a uh, completely lacking of empathy and uh, human rules um, Jonathan doesn't this basically happen or to every president of the Fifth Republic. I mean, Florence there mentions the uh, the, the precedent of Francois Hollande, who was literally polling in single digits yeah, uh, by the time, he, by the time he left office. Yeah. I'm more popular in France than that. <laughs> well, have you tried it out? <laughs> no, that's absolutely true. I mean, the French, you know, every presidential election, there's this great, it's going to be new hope. Uh, everything is going to change. And of course, it doesn't, uh, partly because of the people, partly because of the system. But also, I think with, with Macron, what one has had was, I mean, there are two things. One, he was seen as the new boy on the block who was going to change everything. In fact, he comes from a very Parisian elite, uh, as Florence said, you know, centre-right background. He was their their boy uh, to, to take the presidency. So he was going to do things which would upset people, uh, starting, you know, including even the elderly whose pensions uh, he's attacked. And now when he gets into the welfare system and reforming that, uh, 19% may look uh, pretty good. And on the other hand, yes, he put together this movement to win the presidency and to get a parliamentary uh, majority. But his actual core base support is pretty thin and pretty ephemeral and so on, whereas past presidents all on the part um, had probably around 19, 20%, that uh, fatal figure, um, of basic support behind them. I mean, I, I know you get, when you're president of France, I know you get a palace and a plane and all that sort of stuff. It's a rotten job, though, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind it. I wonder why so many people want to be there. (laughs) No, I mean, yes, okay, it's it's, it's never an an easy job. But look at Theresa May's job. I mean, I think I I still rather prefer to be Macron than Theresa May. Well, bigger house and and better plane. So, you know, there's that. The other thing to notice, uh, note with Macron, I mean, he's been very lucky. You mentioned, you know, he won against Le Pen. Anybody would have won against Le Pen um, uh, just about uh, a bit over a year ago. But what is interesting is the lack of, of coherent opposition to him. And as far as I've seen from uh, the polls, that he may be declining, but nobody else is going up there. There's this kind of emptiness, this hollowness at the centre uh, of French politics, which we've had before, and which Macron somehow just, uh, whether it's because he's seen as uh, arrogant and brittle uh, and giving lessons to everybody, but he, he can't occupy that big, big hole in the centre uh, which is waiting there in French politics and which I think will in the end, you know, slow everything down um, potentially very dramatically. Uh, Florence, he has floated some some new actual reforms, more money for the poor, more money for hospitals and doctors in rural areas, the kinds of things that he's generally accused of not caring all that much about. Um, if these reforms work and they make a measurable difference, is, is that going to help or 
has he reached that point of a, any politician's trajectory at which there's really nothing you can do? I mean, you can turn water into wine, it doesn't matter. The, the people have decided they don't like you. Oh, well, I mean, he still has another four years. And as Jonathan said, he has no rivals. So these are two big advantages, and I think he can regain some ground. Maybe the French will never like him, like, for example, like uh, the French people used to like Jacques Chirac, whether yeah, you were left yeah. or right, because he has this, this humanity. It's a bit difficult to define and we don't have enough time for this so uh, he, he can still at least regain the esteem or uh, feel some expectations so he's, he's not finished yet mm. he could go over <laughs> this but he, he's not that good I would say <laughs> at the kind of play acting that inevitably goes with the nature of the French presidency in which its founder Charles de Gaulle fully uh, recognized that he was playing an act uh, the, the whole time and successful presidents have been able to do that uh, François Mitterrand who I think was a disaster in lots of ways but managed to bring people along uh, by playing this role very well but with Hollande with Sarkozy indeed with Chirac particularly in his second term uh, that resp- the, the kind of the es- esteem the affection uh, for the presidency and the holder of that post has I think uh, frittered right away well, FNB 2022, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, he started already. Uh, but finally tonight, uh, to my homeland of Australia, the population of which is still getting to know its new Prime Minister. This is not an unfamiliar sensation for Australians, such has been the recent turnover in the top job. It has been learned that among the decorations in the office of Scott Morrison is a stylized steel model of a migrant boat emblazoned with the words, I stopped these. The model, apparently a gift from a grateful constituent, let's refer to the constituent as grateful as opposed to any other adjectives that leap to mind, refers to Morrison's stint as Minister for Immigration, during which he oversaw Australia's hardline approach to shipborne asylum seekers. Uh, This struck me, Florence, as a very weird thing to keep. I mean, I'm sure if you are a a politician, you're enthusiastic. Again, let's use words like enthusiastic. Constituents may give you gifts all the time. Um, but you're, you're, not, you're not obliged to keep them still less have them on public display. This this seems a strange choice to me. Yeah, I guess it's a political message rather than yeah. essential. Like to say, okay, I stopped the migrant and this was what I achieved and this is an achievement I'm pretty happy with and the message can still be valid for uh, when I'm Prime Minister now. Okay, well, we've established that Scott Morrison's weird, which is all I really wanted to do there. But what, 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 what I wanted to do next was was ask you both if you have seen yourselves in your, your journalistic peregrinations any especially odd things in politicians' offices, Jonathan. Well, Winston Churchill used to keep a bronze cast of one of his mother's hands on his desk, certainly okay, at Chartwell. That's whether weird. at Downing Street, I don't know, but certainly it's there at Chartwell. Uh, so whether that counts as weird to you. There was also a bust of Napoleon and a rather smaller bust of what I think was uh, Lord Nelson, which may be a, a, a relative uh, valuation of those two. Um, to go to the two superpowers, I don't. I just I haven't been in his office. So I can't tell that only from photographs. Donald Trump uh, seems to have a very messy desk, except for when he's signing executive orders with that angular uh, signature of his. But, but prominent among the clutter is 
is a golf magazine. Of course no it doubt. is. So that's the thing. Uh, if you go to Xi Jinping, uh, we can only judge, because nobody could get into his office who wasn't uh, allowed in, who would tell you what was in there. But from his New Year broadcasts, the books behind him vary. At one point, they were the great novels of the world. Uh, the last New Year's broadcast... Did he get them from one of those television commercials? Well, that's things. what I wonder, you know. <laughs> were, or were they, were they really books, or were they just a, you know, a, a, a bar set, with a, alcohol if, behind? If, if you order now, you'll <laughs> get 50 great novels get, for the price of 10. But last time, he sh- last time around, he showed his up-to-the-dateness um, with a lot of books on artificial intelligence. Now, whether he's actually reading those or not, I don't know, but it was a sign that China is serious about AI. So you look at... Xi Jinping's books as a sign of where uh, he thinks uh, he should be and where he wants China to go. Florence, have you ever been in some politician's sanctuary and lit upon a particular object and wondered what on earth that is doing in here? Nothing that weird. Like it's rather you, you have the feeling they are controlling what they have around and uh, what, what they want to show about themselves more, more than anything else. Yes. I mean, I, I have in my time set foot in three offices which have been occupied by Eddie Rama, the present Prime Minister of Albania, both as Mayor of Tirana, Leader of the Opposition, and now as Prime oh, well, that's, Minister. That's a boast. When I visited him, when he'd just been elected Prime Minister, he it was nearly the most awkward beginning to an interview I've ever experienced, because this was the in his office in the Socialist Party headquarters in Tirana. Um, nobody had told me that he kept in his office uh, two Balkan tortoises. Um, one of which I very nearly trod on shortly after walking <laughs> into... I mean, I, I missed it by a matter of inches. That would have been a very, very, very rickety start to an interview, treading on a chap's tortoise, it would, I think. Uh, the, the two tortoises, I don't know if he still has them, but they were named uh, Fatos and Sali after the two previous prime ministers of Albania, uh, oh, both, of whom, of course, both of whom, of course, absolutely hated him. And I don't think him naming his tortoises after them improved their uh, opinion of him. Of course, Macron keeps a quite large uh, black Labrador. In Does his, he? In, yeah, which is in his office and wanders around and uh, hit the headlines by urinating in the fireplace uh, when some journalists were there uh, at one point. So, uh, But also, if you look at Macron, pictures of his office, there is in the background, a rather strange thing, an old-fashioned turntable. Whether there are uh, any vinyl LPs around, I don't know. The, the hipster president. Exactly. Um, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Florence Biederman and Jonathan Fenby, thank you both very much for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's our business show, The Entrepreneurs. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. I'm back with Midori House at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. For now, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. 